podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This is the Armchair Cricket Podcast. Hello all. Welcome to another episode of Armchair Cricket Podcast, a podcast focusing on test cricket from Armchair Critics of the Game. I am your host, Ajit. In today's episode, we have a really special guest whom I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while. Another cricket podcast host and a podcaster from Australia and a very avid fan of the game who also, well, has some interesting roles on the field. So welcome to the podcast, SP. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adit. It's it's my privilege and an honor to be here. And uh, I'd also like to congratulate you for crossing, what, 165, 167 episodes now? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it's now uh, almost like, uh, I will not use the word routine, but there is enough cricket that I don't have to think about material anymore. And That's true. I'm very lucky with the amount of contacts I have been able to develop on Twitter that I can find people to come and uh, guest host with me and have a chat with me. So I've been very lucky that way as well. Now, that's equally important because, you know, you might want to talk about a lot of things, but you need somebody who shares that interest. And I, th- I think, uh, you know, you're quite blessed that you do find a lot of people who are willing to come and talk. Uh, that That's really useful. I was similarly very lucky when I had Dan Weston come on my one of my episodes and he was talking about the role of analysts and statisticians and strategists and with the growing influence of T20 cricket, you know, how important uh, these people are, have now become and they're pretty much indispensable to any team or any franchise and now even individual players are seeking out analysts to help improve their game as well. So that, that was quite illuminating. Indeed. I mean, I think uh, now there are no professional teams without an analyst, right? So somebody who is probably also well uh, versed in cricket and somebody who can give them tips. So I was previously at some point, I'm having a chat with a Dutch cricketer, Logan van Beek, and that's what he mm-hmm. told me as well. So it's it's very, very um, common to have uh, an analyst on board who can help you uh, with specific uh, sort of uh, targets as well as targets which are more um, you know uh, team based so it is going to be very uh, it's a changing world where uh, you, you cannot think how cricket was played 20 years ago even maybe yeah 20 years ago there were probably teams with uh, analysts but at least 30 years ago when it, it was such a such a rare thing and there have been uh, there have been certain very outspoken players um much like uh, a certain late great player from your part of the world, Shane Wan, who, yeah, true. who thought, you know, uh, th- there was a certain role for uh, people in the team uh, to have leadership roles as as well as, you know, sort of guiding roles. But he, I don't think, believed much in supporting staff outside much of the team. No, he didn't. And he was also a very vocal critic of the coach at that time, John Buchanan, because John Buchanan was pretty much uh, very analysis heavy and a lot of his uh, selection criteria and basically the the final playing level were usually shaped by what he thought would be a good composition in a particular situation and the matchups. And I think it was one of the very first few coaches to do something like that. And Warren wasn't a big fan of that at all. It was his, I think, upbringing, the way he played and learned his cricket. But, you know, it's an ever-changing world. It is an ever-changing world. And uh, you would be amiss to not you know, involve somebody who's uh, just whose work is all time, uh, all the time to just look at, at clips, look at different players from the opposition, analyze their strengths. So uh, you cannot, of course, have all the time for yourself. So it makes sense. And I think the game has evolved to a point where uh, that sort of study has to be done. You can't rely on your instincts all the time or um, your skills and your nows all the time to just find the right solution when you're confronted with the problem on field. Yeah, correct. Because, uh, you know, human beings, as great as our brain capacities are, we have got very selective memories. And I think it always helps to have somebody else looking at that data independently and feeding us that information when it's most needed. Indeed. Coming back to you and your interest in cricket. So what attracted you to cricket? But then the next question is, what has kept you involved? 
<laughs> for what got me attracted to cricket well it's it's a long long story so i grew up in the middle east and uh, in the early 90s so it was about 1990 91 when iraq invaded kuwait so we basically left and then like most people who were repatriated by you know aircraft or via ships we, we decided to drive all the way from kuwait to india now what we didn't know was that the border between iraq and turkey was closed at that time so we were kind of stuck over there in this massive field which sort of served as a car park and there were about 500 cars over there so you can imagine these are 500 families and many of them had children some of them had elderly people so all of us were like refugees you know in this massive field waiting for the border to open and it was pretty much winter time and most of the kids they didn't have anything particularly to do there was no schools no homework you know no tv some of them may have brought board games but you know people just took whatever precious few belongings they had and they just fled so you know it wasn't as if you had any luxury items some of them probably had a football or a basketball but there was a bunch of pakistani guys and they had a cricket bat and a ball nobody had stumps and some of these children including some grown ups would then play in the field adjacent to where all the cars were parked and i had no idea of what cricket was because you know in the middle east football was the number one game probably still is uh, closely followed by basketball and uh, no very rarely people played cricket i had never heard or seen cricket until that point in my life because i was i think i was about 12 years old at that time and my hand eye coordination wasn't very good i used to wear glasses but wasn't able to catch but i was like an extra person who could go and fetch the ball you know if somebody hit it for a four or someplace else and as consolation i was given six balls at the end to bat and there was this other kid i can't remember his name now but uh, he was roughly same age as mine and he took it very personally upon himself to make sure that he got my wicket within those six balls now he tried 2 3 4 days but he never could partly because he never bowled at the stumps if he had bowled at the stumps it probably get me out easy and i think that's that's where my cricket journey started and then once we reached home so this was around uh late 91 um and then towards the i think indian winter of 91 south africa had just come out of uh, their isolation and uh, mum was having surgery at that time so we were in a different town um during the diwali holidays and uh, some of the india south africa matches were being broadcast on tv and my dad used to watch them while we were stuck in hospital because there's nothing else to do and that's how you know i got introduced to cricket after that and you know he sort of told me who the skipper was in south africa's legacy that they used to make about 500 runs in innings at one time and you know barry richards was a great batsman but he never got to play tests all of that and i think it was after that that we actually got the tv in our own house in 92 and that was when the world cup was being held in australia so my dad would wake up very early morning at about 5:30 6 o'clock watch some of the games so one of the my earliest memories is um, that catch that Sachin Tendulkar took in the game i think it was india versus australia mm-hmm. you know the one that he runs from long off and sort of just continues running until he's pretty much close to mid off position and then you know he's taking this stumbling catch so right, uh, that, that's right. that's the one that still remains in my mind as my earliest cricketing memory i don't remember much about the india south africa series before that except for the fact that India won the series Azhar scored 100 in Kanpur and then India beat South Africa even in the uh, one day series as well digression so when Jared Kimber invited uh, this guy called uh, Kobus Olivier on his show to talk about you know his involvement in cricket and he was at that time he had uh, left ukraine because russia had just invaded ukraine and he was basically teaching cricket to a bunch of kids who were refugees in uh, neighboring countries and i thought you know i found that little resonance with that story 
So that, that was that interesting tidbit that I just wanted to add in over there. Your story, it's, it's actually a very poignant one. So in the most, uh, let's say, the trying point where uh, probably you were young, you probably did not know everything at stake. But uh, with so many families trapped, uh, not knowing which way to go and so on, uh, for people to be able to, to break out um, the cricket set and play and sort of uh, spend a few minutes, uh, maybe not worrying about it. Maybe you had adults joining in as well, right? So um, it's it's quite a poignant story, to, to be uh, frank with you. And it, it, yeah. it reminds one that there are more, there is a lot more to life, right? I mean, sometimes we sit in our very comfortable places and um, we are actually um, so focused on the events on the field and we forget that there's a bigger, uh, there's a bigger picture to it. And uh, well, it was very nice to hear that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's just the whole, what shall we say, the whole irony of the setting that, you know, an Indian kid where cricket was like considered religion in India. I was first introduced to cricket by a bunch of Pakistani guys in Iraq where cricket is not even played. So I, I just find that fascinating and interesting. It just goes to show you that, you know, life can throw up surprises when you least expect it. Absolutely. But then uh, you never stop there. I mean, uh, you're now a fully grown man with your own career. <laughs> But uh, you still are involved in cricket. So I would like to know more about that then. Yes, I did sort of stay involved. Um, you could say that I was somebody with not, not even average talent. I think the closest I got to playing in any sort of competitive match was uh, at the inter-university tournament. And this was in the late 90s. And I almost made it to the playing eleven, but I was then nominated as 12th man because some guy came from a rich family and he sort of promised a little gift for the other people in the squad. Um, (laughs) He he managed to get his way in and quite painfully, we lost that game by one run. So I was promised that, you know, instead of the first game, I would definitely play in the next match. But since we never made it to the next round, you know, I never got to play representative games. But that's okay. Like, you know, the the love and the passion for the game is not restricted to when you play. You know, you Mm. just do it whenever you can. I mean, I I remember when I was still at college and sometimes on my way home, I would stop at Dick and Gymkhana. um, Not because I had anything to do, but there would often be a game over there and I would just park my motorbike and sit on the bike and watch these guys play. And I would often think about, you know, how nice it would be to wear a pair of whites and pad up and play with a leather ball. Because as you know, most people in India grow up playing cricket with either a rubber ball or a tape ball or something like that. And then eventually when I moved to UK and I was living in London at that time and where I was working, we formed a team. And that's when I got to first play uh, cricket in any sort of league or tournament sort of structure. All right. What sort of role do you perform on the field? Oh, on the field, I think I'm better at batting than I am at bowling, but I'm more of a bowler at heart. So if you tell me to keep bowling Uh all day, I'll give it my all. Batting, I think after a while, I get either bored or tired or something like that. But uh, I, I think I would have been more suited for the long format of the game rather than the shorter format because big hits and power hits, not, not my thing. You know, I'm more of a nudge, nerdle, take a single, take two over there, you know, place it in the gap, keep the scoreboard ticking along, that sort of guy. Um, nice. I often batted a bit lower, like six, seven. L- later on, I batted at four, which I think kind of suited me more. Yeah, bowling, I tried to get those in-swinging Wasimakram-like Yorkers. Uh, met with success a few times, but a lot of the balls were just rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're an amateur cricketer, the joy of trying itself is the fun, right? I mean, yes, the results yeah, yeah, absolutely. sometimes take care of themselves, sometimes they don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my proudest moment was when uh, we were just uh, like having a practice game and someone bowled a short ball pretty much just on or around off stump and I managed to hit that over square for six and I thought wow that's pretty good timing I, I was really <laughs> proud of that <laughs> it did. 
Well, I mean, those sort of start shots tend uh, tend to stay with you, right? So, I mean, it's one of yeah, those. Yeah, they do. Probably yeah. one shot you played after a, in all a career, and it just felt so right, right? Yeah, that's that's that sometimes is more than enough, and I think pretty much after that, you know, you quickly realize where you are. But for me, you know, I just wanted to stay involved with the sport for as long as I could, and I knew that I could never make it as a player, even if I did make it as a player. You know, by your mid thirties. you sort of enter the state of decline and eventually you retire right so you no longer can stay involved as a player and unless you make it as an international player nobody lets you stay involved with the game um uh, you know unless you go for commentary stints or you get your coaching certificate and things like that mm. and because i you know even when i was in college i was seen as this very impartial sort of guy and I would often stand as an umpire in games involving the other teams. So I thought you know that that's something that I would like to pursue and uh, so I completed my umpire's training in England and I did uh three games in one of the leagues in Essex and then eventually when I moved up to Manchester I did about four years with the Cheshire County League as well. So that wow. that sort of kept my involvement going. Eventually when I moved to Australia I couldn't keep up with that partly because of work and you know things in life uh, but then this year i've started again very nice very nice and um, how different is it the playing so this is what i wanted to understand you've umpired in probably india you've umpired in uk and now you're umpiring in australia right so i wanted to understand yeah. how different is it if you're an umpire playing in a competitive league in each of these countries and so we noticed australians are very hard on the field and they like to play hard Do you see this sort of a setup already from a formative uh, stage, maybe in a club game or even? Yes, yes, I definitely do notice that. Um, I think the other big difference I notice is that if you're playing club cricket in Australia, whether it's Premier Division or Grade One or Grade Two, you know you are sort of expected to attend coaching sessions and drills and things like that. Whereas if you're playing club cricket, even if it's Premier Grade in England. most of it is still considered a recreational sunday league or a saturday game and most of the people just turn up on that particular day unless you are an overseas professional who is playing for the league so the approach to the sport even at that level is much more intense in australia and uh, the australian players will test you out on the field whereas in england they are a little bit more uh, sort of gentlemanly about it if you know what i mean you know they won't I mean, give the empire a hard time i think the only times <laughs> i had problems in the cheshire county league was usually from overseas players so one of them was playing for the central lions league and he was a south african and the other chap was an aussie guy and they were the ones who would just constantly push you but right. uh, a lot right. of the english players were yeah look if the empire gives it out great if it doesn't give it out yeah that's fine we're not going to go hurl abuse at him and point fingers and things like that it's the intensity probably if you are uh, yeah. overseas professional the intensity is always you carry it with you also um some cultures they like to play everything hard right even if you're probably yeah. doing a bbq you like to do it hard oh yeah so yeah, it, yeah exactly right and um some people are able to then uh, you know make a differentiation so you say i'm going to do this mm-hmm. hard that not so much hard and so on and so on yeah so okay uh very interesting to hear uh, your experiences overall so now if you were to go back to some of the on field uh, games uh, that have been taking place since the last episode so yeah. i think we should get st- get started with the semi final games of the women's asia cup were you able to catch uh, either or maybe both of these games today scores i always check the scores the first thing i do when i wake up in the morning is check cricket buzz <laughs> you know this has become a habit and uh, i don't often get to see a lot of matches partly because of uh, the times partly because you know it's not on free to air sometimes uh, some matches might have a highlights package on youtube but most others won't so it's really difficult for me to keep track of watching the games but i will keep track of the scores and i'll make it a point to note you know what are the important developments and you know if some players like run has been consistent or not so consistent so with the indian team i noticed that their first couple of games you know particularly against uae they mm-hmm. sort of experimented with a second string side so hamanpreet didn't play and uh, smriti didn't play 
So, you know, they were trying to give other people a fair few chance. But then when it came to games against Pakistan and Bangladesh, you know, they had a full-strength team. And then I noticed that even against Thailand, they fielded a full-strength team, which, you know, in a way, I kind of like that approach because I think they're not taking Thailand lightly, especially after Thailand beat Pakistan. And they don't want Mm -hmm. to be a similar victim as well which was good to see that. But then you kind of think, you know, you could potentially try out a couple of uh, other newcomers in that game, you know, not maybe the whole team or half the side, but just a couple of them. I know what you mean, but I think um, they did uh, They did give everybody an opportunity to bowl or bat. Even there yeah, was some yeah. criticism against, uh, I think, Pakistan game uh, where, I mean, Harman Preet did not come uh, well uh, up to order like she likes. But there mm. was no messing about in today's semi-final. She batted at four. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which which is a good sign because you know lately, if you have noticed, like pretty much ever since Dravid has taken over the head coach role for the men's side, they have been experimenting a lot with the batting order in T20s and one-day cricket as well. Mm. And this was in a lead up to this World Cup, and I think it was just basically to identify which position suits which particular player best. So that way they have a few options in case they need to rejig the order or somebody gets injured and somebody new has to come in and has to fit in like quite immediately. And it looks like, um, I think Ramesh Pawar is still the coach for the women's side, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. So it, it looks like he has adopted a similar approach for the women's side as well. And th- that is quite heartening to see that you know they are taking it seriously. And with today's confirmation that BCCI is definitely launching a five-team or a six-team women's IPL starting next mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. you know, th- that is going to unearth talent in India like it's nobody's business. Y- you know, India will certainly have so many players and an embarrassment of riches, so to speak. No, I hope so, because it's a uh, long audio. We've been speaking about it on this podcast. Yeah, for a while yeah. already. and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen overnight. We know that it'll take a few years. But as long as, you know, the management, the scouts, they, they have this long-term vision and there is a pathway which is similar to what the men's side now has in place, mm-hmm. th- there's no reason why it can't. Indeed. I mean, I would like to see the women's game um, also flourish and maybe even overtake the men's game because they're usually better at the delivering results by the looks of it. So yeah. <laughs> we'll see if that's true. Now, coming back to the game, well, it was sort of one-sided. It was expected that India would not have too many issues facing Thailand. And I mean, yeah. truly, that's how it turned out. I mean, would you be a bit uh, unsatisfied with how India batted? Maybe you would have looked uh, that they crossed the 160-170 mark, but they were tied to just 148. Well, look, there, there are still issues over there and it boils down to consistency because when you look at Shefali Varma at the top, you know, there are innings where she has made really good scores at a blistering pace and then there are games where she's got it really cheaply and, and that is a pattern pretty much straight down the order Like, and uh, it has affected Smriti as well, it has affected... Uh, Richard Ghosh and Pooja Vastrakar and Jemima as well. So, you know, if they get into this, I won't say routine, but if they get into this habit where mm. seven innings out of 10, you know, they give you that consistent score and the strike rate, then I think we'll begin to see India posting those runs in excess of 160 every single time. Because, you know, it's not for lack of having the players who have that ability to score at that fast rate, it's where do they fit best in the batting order and how can they perform consistently well? Nah, indeed, that is a question. And uh, for each of them to take some time to also you know, blossom into yeah. their role. So yeah, they had a correct. good start. They had a good start. But uh, as things went on, I think Thailand also they exerted a lot of control in the field. They were very athletic in the field. I was able to yeah. catch a little bit of the Indian innings. And then I was able to catch a little bit of Thailand innings. But yeah. I must be blunt about it. When I knew the result was going to go one way, I did not spend too much time on it. But it no. was very interesting. Uh, so that uh, semi-final was sort of finishing in an expected manner. But the second one, the one between Pakistan and uh, Sri Lanka was... I a, know. 
I'll be honest over here. Sri Lanka, especially the women's team, has long been synonymous with just one player, and that's Chamaria Tupatu, right? Hmm. If hmm. she bats well, Sri Lanka have usually had a good chance at winning a game. And when she doesn't perform well, then you know that they're going to have a very middling score. Pakistan has always been a bit hit and miss because they have got two, three players who you know, have the potential, uh, especially Bisma Maruf, who actually did come well today, um, mm. you know, like she has for most occasions. But then the other batters around her really didn't do much. You know, when you get these run chases, where it's pretty much a run a ball, by T20 standards, now when you look at teams like England, Australia, New Zealand, possibly even South Africa, that, that is a subpar score, right? Now, admittedly, in Bangladesh, the pitches are generally on the slower side with the ball, uh, you know, getting a lot of assistance, especially for spinners of the pitch. Now, ideally, I would have thought that Pakistan would have the better bowlers compared to Sri Lanka. But, you know, this time around, it looks like they were able to keep the Pakistani batters under control as well. And mm -hmm. apart from Bisma, nobody else uh, really, you know, came to the fore. So... And it was a very, very close margin, like one run. Now, in that 18th, 18th 17th over, if Bisma Maruf hadn't got out, chances yes. are Pakistan would have won. Now, because okay. she got out and suddenly it was four wickets down and nobody else to follow who could actually see the game through. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, they lost it over there. I think that was the thing that came as a surprise for me because, look, even when Maruf got out, they were still requiring to score run a ball. Right. And yeah. they had yeah. six wickets in hand, you would think. Right. Yeah. So from yeah. here, they should be able to take this home because Nidadar was still at the crease. She was set. Yeah. Right. I think yeah. the credit goes to the way Sri Lanka bowled in those last two overs. Two overs. Right? Especially so, the 19th over because uh, that 19th over started with a wicket of the first ball and suddenly. Pakistan is now on the back foot because A, they do want to make sure that they don't lose any more wickets through silly mistakes. But then, you know, you also kind of got to make sure that the runs don't get too out of hand. And when you score only four runs in that 19th over, mm -hmm. suddenly the gravity of the situation uh, hits you that, oh my God, now I have to score it more than run a ball in the last over. And sometimes that can create panic amongst players. And that's how it happened, right? So, I mean, usually seven to eight runs in the last over with one really good set batter in Nidadar who can hit out, right? So, you would expect yeah, yeah. they would clinch it. But uh, I think Sri Lanka really kept their nerve very well. They missed a run out of yeah. the last but one ball. But in theory, yeah. they really did the job in the last three overs. And for me, that's yes. where they distinguished themselves because yeah. Sri Lanka actually scored a lot of runs in the last three when they batted. Probably that was yeah. the difference between the two teams. Now, looking at T20 tactics and the way the game has evolved over the last few years, to me, it feels as if Pakistan did not show that urgency required at the top of the order, right? So, Muniba Ali batted really well, scoring 18 of 10, but then her opening partner scored 9 of 20 balls. And that, for me, is a very slow start in a T20 mm. game. Now, can you imagine if you are not maximizing the potential in your first six overs in the power play, you're actually putting a lot of pressure further down the order. Two, three, two, three extra runs. So say, for example, she scores 15 of 20 balls, right? That's six runs more, which basically adds six runs to Pakistan's total. And suddenly, Pakistan are winning the game with one over to spare. Yes. I mean, that's how you would want it to happen. So just uh, yeah. actual rate after the 15th over be done at the end of the 17th or the 18th over, right? Yeah. Something like this. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, while in a one-day game, you might have a lot of time to catch up with the run rate eventually. T20s do not allow you that luxury because you have to be on the ball right from the start. You can't afford not to maximize those opportunities. And, you know, I, th I think it's just something that a lot of people are catching up on at the moment. So it's going to be an interesting final now because mm. earlier in the series when India and Sri Lanka had met as well, I mean, it was not much of a surprise India were able to beat them. But then in the final, it will be a completely different Sri Lankan team turning up. Yeah, you never know. I mean, these guys will be fired up now, knowing that if they can control Pakistan, you know, they have an outside chance at beating India too. Um, Sri Lanka won the men's edition of the Asia Cup. So, you know, maybe the ladies might take uh, some inspiration from that and just, uh, you know, bring their A game.
if i were to put you in spot on the spot and ask you who will yeah. win the women's asia cup i would say india because you know you can come up with an upset on your day but generally when it comes to tournaments uh, usually the better balanced team and the more experienced team often comes out on top which is why you know we see very few upsets in test matches but you know you get to see more so in the t20 format now just because i've said india is likely to win this you know mm. you know some some of the stars will align in a completely different manner and sri lanka might win the final you never know You're like netherlands has beaten england twice in the men's t20 world cups right so anything can happen and which is what makes t20 such a great format absolutely absolutely let's see if uh, you know you may see an upset or we may see something that goes to form i would back yeah, yeah, yeah. as well last thing stand but as you said anything can happen on that day. it's a t20 game yeah. right yeah if you if you look at you know player to player india has the upper hand but uh, again anything can happen on any given day for all we know the, it might be affected by rain it might be a shortened match and uh, suddenly you know the indian batters are struggling to get that ball off the square you never know absolutely absolutely let's see let's see uh, some some uh, fun to look forward to in the upcoming days now from there if we were to move on to the tri series new zealand bangladesh and pakistan so there was another yep. high scoring game today where you know in spite of their best efforts bangladesh failed to clinch that game and pakistan i think they took them to the last but one ball of the game but pakistan uh, ran out as winners so yeah, yeah. from your perspective if you look at these three teams so in my one of my previous episodes the guest was a bit critical of bangladesh he said they are going to be the bystanders and it turned out that way they have lost all four of their games in the tournament but yeah when you look at their team and how they have been preparing do you see that they'll pick it up from here and do well at the world cup well you know you'd like to think so if you see cricket's passionate base the subcontinent probably has more cricket fans than all of the countries combined right mm-hmm. and even though bangladesh doesn't regularly do well even though teams like nepal don't regularly do well you know you just mm. need to see what their fan base is like and how passionate they are for the game and how passionate they are for their own teams to do well and it, i think in bangladesh history since they got one day status their wins have been very sporadic you know like a few here and a few there uh, early this year when bangladesh beat new zealand in that uh, test match and when they beat south africa in the one day series in south africa you know i had hoped that okay maybe this is the time that they have turned the corner and they'll start to put in those consistent performances and you know just like you, you talk about a bowler spell you know where you're talking about stringing those dot balls together to build pressure Bangladesh has never strung their wins together you know they'll have like two three wins here and there and then you know they're back to their default setting and i think bangladesh's biggest problem especially in white ball cricket is that they don't have enough players who can hit the ball beyond the boundary rope you know they don't often get those big sixes in or those boundaries that are required every over or so you know they're more than happy to like hit the ball along the ground and do that now there were a couple of players like uh, tamim and mahmudullah who could actually you know play that attacking innings now mahmudullah doesn't play in these uh, one days and uh, no one day sorry the t20s anymore and tamim doesn't play the t20s so it's mm. down to some of the other players and as good as shakib has been not only for bangladesh but even for kkr you know shakib's now towards the coming towards the end of his career so obviously his reflexes his timing power everything is not as good as what it used to be but uh, today he and litten das they were the main scorers and they scored at around 160 odd but then if you look at the strike rates of other players i mean the openers were at about 80 right um right, right. one one person scored i think 10 12 the other scored less than 5 and then mm-hmm. after uh, litten and shakib went everybody else is pretty much single digit scores yeah they couldn't get that final boost you know uh, from 173 yeah, if that crossed yeah. 185 yeah yeah they couldn't get that in the end yeah they didn't and the big difference over here is the number of wickets because not only does a wicket stop the momentum but it also gives the opposition and you a dot ball 
Now, right. that basically is a dot ball where you're not scoring anything. So let's say instead of 173 for six, if Bangladesh had lost three fewer wickets and they would have stayed at three down, they mm. probably have got maybe five extra runs for those three deliveries that they lost the wickets. And then in the grand scheme of things, you know, Pakistan would have fallen short by two or three runs instead of, you know, just winning by one. But then having said that, yeah, because if you if you remember the India-Pakistan game that India lost in the Asia Cup, it boiled down to something similar. Like the top order, you know, made 40s. I think Kohli made 60 or something like that at a decent clip. But then the general people that you expected to be there and hit, Sky, Pandya, and Karthik, they lost their wickets pretty cheaply. I think Pant was in that uh, mix as well. And India then just like lost uh, to Pakistan. I think Pakistan scored the winning runs of the last delivery or something like that. Or maybe India was back in second. Yeah, 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 something like that, right? Now, if you kind of think that if Sky and Hardik had stayed, not only would they have boosted the run rate further, but, you know, they would have avoided the loss of their wickets and the two subsequent wickets, thus giving themselves an extra four deliveries to maximize as well. So, you know, like in a T20 game, these little, little things matter. And, um, you know, a lot of people blamed India's bowlers for losing that game when you kind of think, well, both bowlers, both teams' bowlers went for similar runs. So you can't really blame the bowlers on that kind of pitch. You know, it all boils down to who uses the number of deliveries more effectively. And I think in that game, Pakistan did it better. In the earlier game, India did it better. Right. So now if you were to look at Pakistan in this tournament, they have reached the finals and it's going to be uh, Pakistan and New Zealand to play the finals. So do you think they've resolved the issues that they probably brought into the tournament, the top heavy batting and so on? Or do you see the same trend continuing? I think I'll see the same trend continue, but it looks like, uh, you know, that has been Pakistan's MO. They have decided that this is how we are going to play because we have the bowlers to back what our batsmen can score. Now, the, not consensus, but my, my opinion is Pakistan are very comfortable defending a score of around 160 to 80. Anything more than 180, they know for a fact they're likely to defend it pretty much like 80% of the time. Mm. And they can back their batsmen in the current lineup and the approach to give them that score of around 170, 175, perhaps on a good pitch, maybe even a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. Because they know that, you know, with Babar and Rizwan at the top, they've got a solid batting pair who not only are going to make runs, but with Rizwan, you know, they'll probably get it at a slightly faster rate as well, if need be. Um, The problem with Pakistan is that middle order. You know, today you had Heather Ali, Nawaz, Asif Ali. I still think Asif Ali should be batting at four and probably Shadab should be batting at three, maybe. And Masood wouldn't uh, fit into your top order then? Uh, probably not in the top three or four because, uh, again, it comes down to management of resources, isn't it? I mean, you have a fixed number of deliveries in a T20 game. You would want to maximize each and every delivery as many times as you can in order to ensure that consistent win ratio. If you're not allowing your best batter, so it's a bit like India not playing uh, Sky at three, for example, right? If he's batting at four and five and the top three, which is Kale, Rohit and Kohli, if these guys are batting for about 30, 35 deliveries each, what has Surya Kumar got to play with at the end? Hardly anything. I see that, but they've also pushed Shadab Khan up to number four, which has sort of foreshadowed that he has the right sort of attitude and the strokes if required to lift the run rate. Yeah, and I think Shadab at four is probably a good fit. And maybe Asif Ali should be at three, and then Shan Masood can come at five, perhaps. But mm. I mean, then then comes the issue, right? Shan Masood does not have the game from number five to actually come and score at a 150-plus or 160-plus, which is what you require. Because if it all goes to plan, right, your number five and number six will probably play the last two to three hours of the game. Right? Yes. So, You'd rather have, not even an Ifti car, but you'd rather have a Haider Ali or some big hitter there in place. Some big hitter, yeah, correct. And I think this is where Pakistan is struggling because they just don't have the luxury like, say, England has or Australia has or India has, where they can have fast scoring openers at the top and those middle order hitters as well to push that uh, score. Mm. 
mm-hmm. but, which is why I think, you know, they know their team composition, they know their strengths and they're playing to their strengths, which is why they have a set template for that. I mean, it will cost them a few matches here and there, but if they're willing to back their plan and strategy and their players to deliver, then who knows? In that case, I mean, the most improved team for me in this tri-series was New Zealand because New Zealand. at the start, yeah, 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 they looked a bit uh, out of sorts, but they seem to have sorted themselves out right and gotten themselves ready for the finals. <laughs> I'll be honest over here. I was talking to a few friends the other day and, you know, we talked about the league phase and, uh, you know, the likely four for the semis. And we went through a few teams and their combinations. It was after we sort of decided, okay, these two are likely to reach the final. We kind of thought, no, we never talked about New Zealand. We just looked at each other. Always. Always. Yeah, we never talked about New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, nobody considers them. And they regularly punch above their weight. And looking at their team composition now and what everybody is playing at, you know, Finn Allen is doing really well. Devin Conway has raised his game, right? Um, even Martin Guptill is scoring runs when, you know, you know that he kind of blows hot and cold most days. And they've suddenly found Glenn Phillips and then they've got uh, Jimmy Neesham in the middle order. So a lot of New Zealand's like with Kane Williamson in the squad, the balance was off for New Zealand. And now that Kane Williamson is not in this playing 11, you know, suddenly they've got uh, players who can fit those respective roles and uh, do what's needed. Well, I mean, one small correction. Shane, uh, Kane Williamson is back in and uh, he's back to scoring at a strike rate of 110 or something. Okay, but, well, then, it, then then that's a bit like Australia selecting Steve Smith, isn't it? And <laughs> having that team around him. I was going to ask you about that anyway. My next question would have been about, you know, the position of Steve Smith in the World Cup. So, for Australia, do you see him making the World Cup at all? Or do you think it's just, they're just carrying well, him as a backup in case something really goes long in the 11? I hope that's the case. Um... I think given the way how Cameron Green played against India in India, I'd have hoped that he would have been in the squad of 15 rather than Steve Smith. Because, you know, if you look at Steve Smith replacing a player in the playing 11, who's he replacing? There's nobody in that Australian squad that bats like him and at that Mm. strike rate, right? You've got Warner, who's basically back to form after the middling uh, last year. Then uh, you've got uh, Stoinis, you've got Mitch Marsh, who after his promotion to number three has suddenly, you know, found himself again. For some weird reason, Matthew Wade seems to be striking pretty well as well. Maxwell is the inconsistent cog over there, but there's nobody in that team that bats in a similar mold to Steve Smith. So I, I don't know why he's there. And if they select Steve Smith in the playing left they'll have to leave somebody out who can outscore Steve Smith. Yeah, that's the concern. So if Australia select Steve Smith, then they are basically doing themselves a disservice. Yeah, I think uh, so. You know, we also discussed about it in the previous episodes and we, we thought they waited for a little too long to actually sort out this issue. Maybe it should have already been sorted out by now and he should have made way. Look, uh, England can't find a place for uh, Joe Root. Kane Williamson no. is just there or thereabouts in the New Zealand team. And he's there for his leadership, frankly, rather than his runs. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. And India have now at least have a rejuvenated Kohli who, who looks like a different uh, different beast these days. Yeah. So they'll be hoping he's able to replicate his big runs. Otherwise, none of those big four actually fit in at T20 level. I partly agree with you on that one that Personally, I would have preferred only one of Kohli, Rahul, and uh, Rohit to be in the playing level. And then you kind of mm. get some of these youngsters in and, uh, you know, just let them go ballistic. You know, people like Sanju Samson who can hit pace right at the top, you know, in the power playovers. Um, Sky, I think, I personally think Sky should be batting at three because, you know, he's good against pace, he's good against spin. He can hit the ball anywhere in the ground. And out of the ground. Absolutely. And, you know, which is why he should be facing as many deliveries as he can in those middle overs. And then, you know, you follow that up with guys like Huda, Pandya, DK. Jadeja's injury is going to be a big loss for India. 
And, but, yeah. you know, you kind of think, well, if you want somebody over there, you could add Pant in purely as a batter as well. Indeed. I mean, this is a discussion point as well. If a Pant is batting yeah. a bit lower down the order, is he really worth that place? Uh, if he doesn't get at least 60, 70 balls uh, in the innings, maybe he shouldn't be there at all. So it's, yeah. this is a longer discussion. But as yeah. things stand, though, if Kohli can give uh, India the runs at a strike rate of 130, they still have to sort the issue of, uh, unfortunately, Rahul and Rohit. If, uh, firing Rohit will probably cover over that one. Otherwise, yeah. for me, Rahul and Kohli are very much uh, like uh, each other. And you have, uh, you put yeah. finger on the spot there. Uh, look, I think, I think Kohli is slightly better because, you know, Kohli will not hang around wasting balls. You know, with Rahul, what I've noticed is when, when he gets into that zone, he starts mm. accumulating runs at the beginning and then he starts hitting those big shots, which is pretty much what he did against the Western Australia 11. But then Absolutely. what happens is by the time he accelerates, he's already wasted, you know, prime deliveries at the top of the innings. You know, it was a bit like when Shikhar Dhawan started slowing down. India was scoring 45, 50 runs in the first 10 overs of a one day, right? right. And they were being outscored by pretty much everyone. So I think there was this graphic that I had seen on Channel 9 sometime in 2019, I think, that since the 2015 World Cup, India was ninth out of 10 countries when it came to strike rates and run rates in the first 10 overs of a one-day game. Wow. Right? Can you imagine that? Uh, I think it was only Zimbabwe that was <laughs> below India. At least results-wise, it have... doesn't show that. But that's from no, their bowlers and their middle order yeah. covering up. Yeah. Very interesting. But, you know, it, it, it's something to think about, isn't it? Like, no, see, absolutely. It, it, it's like any strategy management sim, isn't it? You have give, been given a finite amount of resources. Your job is basically to maximize those resources um, and use them efficiently so that, uh, you know, you come out on top compared to the other team. Indeed. I don't think uh, they are going to resolve this problem, but let it resolve itself. Maybe two of those people will retire not so long in the future from international and the Fingers problem will crossed. go away. It is the Indian way. You're right. I mean, how long did we see Kapil Dev continuing just because he needed to break Richard Hadley's record? How long did we see Tendulkar playing just because, you know, he had to score that 100th century? How long did we see players like Rena, Yuvraj hang around? Dhoni even, you know, like after the runs had dried out and the strategic captaincy had sort of fizzled down and become out of fashion. Uh, it's basically the same thing that, you know, we are doing with Rahane and Pujaro the last couple of years as well. And, uh, you know, Kohli slump in form, all of that. So, like you said, you know, it's the Indian way. You know, we did that with uh, Mithali Raj as well. <laughs> Up to a point, I would say. I mean, Goswami yeah. and Mithari Raj has a slightly different connotation. But I mean, okay, that's uh, opening a door which will take a bit of time. But yeah. rounding this off, if you were to now have a quick chat about the India series, I mean, does India really now have the bench strength to actually probably field three full international teams? Yes, I definitely think so. Look, look at where we are now, right? The T20 squad is in Australia preparing for the World Cup. And we have a separate group of 11 players playing a one-day series against South Africa and beating the crap out of them. Indeed. I mean, the way it, the third it, game finished, I was really disappointed yeah. simply because South Africa sort of seemed to want to win this series because they wanted the points desperately. And they took a gamble yeah. of playing a ODI series one week out of a cricket World Cup. I know. I just could not wrap my head around that because you kind of think if you're really serious about winning... Any tournaments, right? World Cup, no World Cup, it doesn't really matter. Mm. Make sure you send your team over there in advance like the others do. Get acclimatized to the conditions. Get a taste of, you know, what the pitches are playing like. And prepare for that. Why are you playing a tournament in India? You know, and, and that too, against a second string Indian side, not, not even their main side. Right, right, right. And, and mean, while this series was going on, India A was playing another series somewhere against someone else and winning those games too. Absolutely. That's that's what I meant. That's why it was like three full teams. And it can yes. be a reality maybe someday in the future. But I mean, yeah. is it a good you game? Know what? Is it the right thing? 
to, I'll, I'll come to that. But do you remember this Commonwealth Bank series in the mid '90s when ah, I know very Australia, yeah. Australia A, and you know two visiting teams were playing, and the final was between Australia and Australia A. I remember that. Yes, right. <laughs> It is quite possible for India to host a similar quadrangular at home and field two Indian sides, like an India senior side and an India A side, and have two visiting teams. And I wouldn't be surprised if the two India sides reach the final. So India definitely does have the bench strength. The problem with India has always been managing the talent and managing people's egos. Growing up, we always saw that the selection was based on where the selector is from, which zone is he from. And then you got a lot of players from that zone in the national side that particular year. Next year, someone else was chief selector and that zone players got into the team. So this time around, some of those issues are no longer prevalent, but we still have this culture of hero worship and, you know, the seniors will decide and, you know, let's go with the flow. It's as if for them, so sort of managing those players becomes more important than you know, the bigger picture for the team and getting the team to win as many games as they can. Now, mm-hmm. if you are being honest and you say, yeah, we are not that too fast about winning games, but this is how we want to operate. That's fine, right? right? But make it, make it clear right at the outset. Nobody's going to question that. But then when you have fans clamoring for wins and you're charging them, you know, a decent amount of money to come to the grounds and watch or cable TV subscriptions or whatever it is, then, you know, people will want you to win as much as you want to because they're paying good money to watch you guys, right? So at least put out your best team out there. It's a good headache for them to have. I mean, look at what happened in the Gabba test early last year. India right. won with a third third string bowling attack and a second right. string batting at right, order. And it again, once again, it underlines the brash audacity of youth. They don't give two hoots as to what your (laughs) reputation is as an opposition. We are here. We will still smash you out of the park, right? Whereas with established players, you know, they're always sort of mindful of what the other player's reputation is. Oh, this bowler is a good bowler. I better be watchful. Youngster comes in first game, second game. He's like, you know what? I'll show you who's boss around over here. You bowl in my (laughs) half, you're going to get smashed. And, you know, that, right. that's a refreshing change, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, there is a place for uh, respect. There is a place for uh, all of these things. But sometimes it's off the field. Yeah. All right. Those were, uh, let's say, most of the games that we wanted to talk about. If you were to go away and uh, talk of some of the off-field news. So, there are at least two cricketing bodies who seem to be, mm. uh, you know, experiencing some sort of trouble. So, the USA cricket body... <laughs> Right. They had to declare, a, I mean, that's a huge debt. 650K is a huge debt for a cricketing body to declare. Yeah, but, but you know what they declared it most on? Oh, there was some hurriedly, hurriedly um, arranged tour and administration costs. Yeah, well, administration cost was in the tens of thousands, but I think they claimed something like 250000 for organizing this Ireland tour to USA. Exactly, exactly. It really does not cost you that much money. And this is not the first time USA Cricket has been embroiled in controversy. Like Ever since they have tried to gain ICC membership, there have been two administrative bodies in the USA. ICC had told them, you guys decide which one is the more legitimate of the one and you present your case to us. And I think that took them like a number of years for them to sort that out. And now this has been going along. I mean... There are good signs in the U.S. that you've got minor league cricket coming in, you've got major league cricket coming in, and some former international players have signed up. They've got decent sponsors. You know, people are paying money for some of these overseas professionals to come and play. Uh, new grounds and stadia are being built and repurposed for cricket, which is, you know, nice. But then you get news like this, and I wouldn't be surprised if they suddenly declare bankruptcy once again. Who knows? It would be a real would, shame if that were to really It would happen. be a real shame because, you know, the men's side, you know, has won a couple of games against Scotland and Emirates uh, in the, I think was it the Intercontinental or the Super League or something. But whatever mm-hmm. tier they were playing, you know, they, they won a few games. Their women's side has also been, you know, improving quite well. Their under-19 women's side has been doing reasonably well as well recently. So it would be an absolute shame for them to lose all of this talent or not be able to play international games or even domestic games just because of the ineptitude or corruption within the alleged corruption within mm-hmm. the administration. 
Right, right. I mean, they have to sort their house out a little, and this can't happen yeah. more than once. There is some money coming in, uh, coming in from ICC, but it, if it's if you're pulling pouring all the money into a hole, there's no point. Even ICC will say, okay, this is going nowhere. We're going to stop this. Correct. Right. Yeah, exactly. And ICC doesn't have a lot of money to begin with because the big three take uh, what ninety five percent of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, that's another story as well. So yeah. Now, if you were to think of the other board that's in trouble, is Afghanistan. And that's again due to some of the funds that they were expecting from ICC to come that has been withheld due to sanctions because they are not doing enough with women's cricket. This is all changed. Yeah. This is a change scenery, right? Because of the, what happened last year in August. This this is a this is a very tricky political situation over here because even with the change in regime in Afghanistan last year and the them cracking down on women's cricket. Um, ICC gave them special dispensation to say, look, at least we'll allow your men's team to continue playing. Now, we know that they're never going to let the women play as long as said regime is in power, right? And ICC is very clear about its membership rules and criteria and, you know, what's likely to get you qualified for international games and what your status will be X, Y, Z. And over there, Afghanistan, Afghanistan is an outlier. Other teams, other countries might come and argue, we need membership as well, because mm. uh, Afghanistan's got full test membership, and not, not just full ODI status, but test status as well. At least right. give us affiliate or associate or T20 or whatever it may be. You know, why is it that they are being excused to a certain point if if you look at you know the political side of it south africa was banished for 21 years because of apartheid right all right that they could have said then as well that oh look you know we'll let you guys play but you know make sure you sort your house out first we don't know how long that's going to take so rightly or wrongly south africa was excluded from the international community and i think afghanistan might eventually have to face a similar fate i don't know because I mean, you know, really there will hope be some. It doesn't come to that. I hope it doesn't come to that because of all the teams to have gained a full member status or even full ODI status, mm. Afghanistan's progress, I think, has been the quickest by far. Uh, like when you compare to when Zimbabwe got ODI status, Sri Lanka got ODI status, Bangladesh got ODI status, Ireland got ODI status, and Afghanistan. Mm. Of all these recent entrants into the senior cricketing community, so to speak, mm-hmm. Afghanistan's progress has been the best, I would say. Right, right, right. Now, I mean, in that case, you would say they have to sort their house out again. And But this, there are cultural issues as well as other issues yes. that they have to think yes, about. Exactly. It's for yes. them to decide. But what would be what would be the hardest stance here? What if, what if uh, ICC were to be pushed into a corner and required to make a decision? See, in my very limited political knowledge and more optimistic cricketing views, the rise of T20 leagues gives them an option to ply their trade elsewhere, right? Because mm-hmm. these T20 leagues are not technically ICC-run events. They are domestic leagues of sorts. Now, if you're an independent player, like say, for example, you know, Lancashire has two overseas players every season, right? Which is part mm-hmm. of the ECB regulations, and that's what each county is allowed. Right. You have four overseas players in the IPL. Now, those four overseas players have to get no objection certificates from their respective boards because mm. whatever money those players make and because the IPL is using those players, the home boards get a certain amount of revenue back as well. Now, if... Right. Afghanistan has been sort of boycotted, so to speak. A lot of these players may not represent Afghanistan. They could, like, given the ICC regulation and the structures, you know, it's not like the Olympics where you can form a separate team and uh, compete under a neutral banner as such, because, you know, you probably would need to be affiliated with a country. But there's nothing to stop them from sort of emigrating to a different country and... Emirates, for example, in this case, and playing uh, the uh, T20 League in the Emirates, so to speak, or maybe even Pakistan. A lot of Afghani players have bases in Pakistan. That's where they were and that's where they learned their cricket. So, you know, they could potentially relocate and uh, play the PSL. 
it, it, it's, um, it's a tough one. It, it's a tough one because, you know, for me, it's not just the setback that Afghanistan faces as a cricketing establishment, but these right. players, the promising talented players, the, the way their livelihoods are going to be affected as well. You know, just when they have been shown this promise and they have realized that, hey, even somebody like me can play um, at an equal level with players like Kohli and A.B. de Villiers and Chris Gale, and, you know, I can earn a similar amount of money if I'm equally capable and talented. So, Absolutely. yeah, it, it, it's, it's a tricky one, really tricky one. I think that's why ICC has to have that additional, you know, time that they give them and let them sort yeah. their things out internally. Yeah, so yeah, on. yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think everything has a, even patience has to have a time for it and so on. But let's see, let's see how it uh, really pans out. Now, we should have a quick chat about uh, Roger Bidney, who's almost <laughs> certain to be the next BCCI chairman. What happened there? Well, so the only reason Dada would have left that job is if he got a better job. So if Dada is not contesting next year's BCCI presidency, I think in all likelihood, he's likely to be ICC president or exactly. Some, some, exactly. someone higher up over there. For me, Bini's name in the hat is very surprising because, you know, for years, you have never associated Roger Bini with most cricket administrative setups. I mean, he was with the Karnataka board and you know he did bits and pieces over there but at the national level even at an IPL level you know mm. his name has never come up uh, you know players like Vengsharkar and Sandeep Patil you often hear in the Mumbai Cricket Association or Maharashtra Cricket Association because they all have this ongoing tussle with MCA and you know MCA has often cracked down on Vengsharkar's effort to take over presidency because you know he's a nice mm. clean guy whereas you know some cricket organizations or administrations don't want nice clean guys to run the sport. Um, but yeah, it's just completely come out as a surprise. I mean, I would have expected that if Dada was going to ICC, somebody like Jay Shah, who's the current secretary, or some other established person who has been around the IC, uh, BCCI for a long time and has the political clout, would probably get that presidency over there. So Billy's name is just surprising. I'm going to read it the way I see it, right? So, Vinny yeah. is the nice person to have in the place. And yeah, the yeah. real power is always with the secretary anyway, right? Correct. So, yeah. the real power is with the secretary who's seeking re-election, right? Yes. And, and then he will comes, get re-elected. Yes. I mean, he's seeking yeah. re-election is sort of a overstating a point, but you understand. Yeah, it's just basically a tokenistic thing, isn't it? You just have to go through the motions. Right. Because yeah. there's, there's no the way Jaisha is being kicked out yet. Right. So he's there for life if he wants it, so to say. But we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> now, coming back. So Ganguly's aspirations, I think, are pretty much clear. He's going for the next post. It might be the president of the ACC or president of the ICC itself. ICC, I think probably, there, is, yeah. there is some sort of a deal stuck at a different level. And so I read recently that even um, I think it was uh, Dalmia, the Abhishek Dalmia, he was also not given mm. the, let's say, the preferred position of the board recommended position from Bengal. It was mm. retained with Ganguly. So that gave us right. an, an idea. No, Ganguly is going to be the next president. He's, that's what he wants out of DCC. I know, but then something else is happening uh, behind the scenes, So which at least took me by surprise. So yeah. that's why I thought uh, hmm, I might get your opinion as well. So I think you read no, the no. situation the same way. Pretty much. And I think most people who have followed uh, the political landscape of Indian cricket, you know, would probably feel the same way. Because, you know, if you are BCCI president or secretary, the only next best position, and that is only for stature, is ICC <laughs> presidency. Just for right. stature, not for power or money. Because once you get ICC presidency, you don't have power. Right? But if you're yes. BCCI president, you have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, it's more than the power itself. It's the amount of funds that pass through your hands. And that is the Absolutely. true power, isn't it? Yes, that is what power is. You know, there are people in the world who don't want money as much as they want power. Because with power, you can influence whoever the hell you want. Whereas with money, there's still people you can't influence. So, I mean, at least that's the belief. But okay, this yeah. is a longer discussion, right? So uh, to wrap it up, it looks like John Campbell, who I was suddenly surprised to see he was not in the West Indian squads anymore. So the real reason has come out. It looks like he's been banned for four years on a doping offense. He's considering doping his offense. appeal. Yeah. It's a real, real terrible shame. Yeah, but if you look at the history of doping in cricket, there's not that many people who have had to undergo bans. Um, Shane Warne went 
a one year or a two year suspension. Um, Alex Hales recently had a yeah. Alex Hales had a three year suspension, I think, or two years. Yeah, and he's just finished that and he's back in the team. And now it looks like John Campbell will be four years. So four years is a long time in competitive sport, and I think this is the longest doping-related ban that I know of in cricket. Absolutely, for a player, yes, this is this is quite something. Yeah, yeah. I think there are yeah. a couple of UAE players who faced longer bans, but I mean, I think they they actually also were culpable for a few things. In his yes, case, yes, that that was a different story. I think that involved a lot of fixing and all of that as well. So that that's a different uh, aspect to it. Exactly. Those are all the topics we wanted to discuss. So, thanks for your very measured opinions, and it's been a real pleasure chatting to you, SP. Like I said, the pleasure is all mine. Maybe someday I can reciprocate and I can come on your podcast. So, would you like Absolutely. to plug your podcast? So, mine is not <laughs> as popular as yours. We definitely don't have 160 <laughs> episodes <laughs> to our credit. Uh, I think we just crossed 10 this weekend. So it's still a very young, fledgling sort of podcast. So it's now moved on from its infancy to its uh, preteen years, so to speak. So you'll probably start to see a few tantrums on the podcast and things like that before <laughs> it, it reaches its maturity. <laughs> uh, so we, uh, the, our, our cricket podcast is called The Cricket Slouch. And uh, on Twitter, we go with the handle at cricketing underscore C-O-N-V because that's the one I started first. And then I thought, oh, I'll probably use the cricketing slouch as the podcast name. And then eventually couldn't change the Twitter handle. So I just left it as it is. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if any of your listeners want to search for the cricket slouch, they can easily find it on uh, Twitter. They can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout. Uh, Spotify and some other platforms that I'm not even aware of, but somehow, you know, there are listeners on there. <laughs> but yeah, Wonderful. but it's a very small one. It's basically a bunch of us friends, you know, having a bit of a giggle and laugh. And, you know, it's absolutely, completely stat and analysis free. Uh, most of it is very subjective. Some of it is highly opinionated, biased views. But, you know, sometimes you have to see the sport through that lens as well, isn't it? As a fan, you, you can't Absolutely. really objectify everything because that then just takes away the charm, the narrative, the story of the sport. And sport without a narrative and a story is boring. Indeed. All right. So we wish all our listeners, wherever they may be listening from, a good day. And thanks once again, SP. And I hope to catch up oh. with you again. Thank you, Ajit. Thank you so much for your time and for having me on. No worries. Bye-bye. Bye. This is the Armchair Cricket Podcast.